hear from many of you is, how did you meet your wife? Uh, in a lot of ways, it's a short story. No one wants to hear the short story. But Julie and I met at Cornerstone uh, when I moved from Illinois to Massachusetts. Uh, we, beca we became friends. We dated for three years. Uh, this is a picture from one of our first dates. Um, we went bowling, Boston Bowl. It's a sacred place for us. Um, I, I'm going to get in trouble if I keep her face up there too long. Um, we've been married for five and a half years, and we're expecting our first child in April. <laughs> I, I did not say that for that, but thank you. Uh, but in other ways, uh, it's a long story, uh, at least for me. Uh, being single was pretty complicated for me, personally. My parents got married really young, so I just grew up with this idea, oh, I need to get married, like, early, mid-20s. I, um, on top of that, struggled a lot with negative thoughts uh, leading to low self-esteem, especially with the opposite gender. Um, I didn't know how to navigate the emotions that I had toward the opposite gender, um, the feelings, the thoughts, the desires. Uh, I didn't know much about relationships, and I didn't really have people to guide me. My parents, um, for a lot of different reasons, they did not give me any talk about the birds and the bees or dating or anything like that. And uh, if I'm really honest with you all, there's still parts of marriage, and especially as I uh, become a dad, that I don't know. I really don't know. And I wish I had a detailed instruction manual on how to na navigate these things, a how-to. And I bring that up because we are in our last week of our sermon series that we've called With. And uh, in this series, we've looked at relationships, all sorts of relationships. Historically, we've only talked about romance, uh, but we've looked at relationship with God, um, our understanding of how God has created us for relationships, Last week, Pastor Bill shared on friendships. And we've been unapologetic about giving you principles and priorities. Uh, we have not given you a lot of how to do this, step one, step two, step three, because more important than how to do those things, I think, well, the pastors believe that it's more important to know that we are God's image bearers. It's more important to know that the biblical priority is to have an intimate relationship with God, not for, not from, not over, not under, but with him. The biblical standard for how we're supposed to engage one another in friendships and the people who don't know Jesus. And today we're doing the same thing around romance. So we're going to look at a scripture. Uh, I think you might be surprised, but to develop a theology for romance. That's what we want to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, starting from verse 6, and we'll read to verse 9. Revelation chapter 19, starting from verse 6 to verse 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we continue. God, everything we've sung, everything we've participated in, it's all about you increasing, for you to be seen. And even right now, if I need to decrease so that you would increase, may it be so. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So in all honesty, uh, I did not expect to preach on Revelation. I, had, I actually prepared all the research for another passage. And as I was preparing, I just felt like God was saying, no, you need to leave that passage and read this one. So with all my heart and with some trepidation, I believe that God has a word for you. We're in the last three chapters of the entire Bible. This is a vision of the end times and the end of the entire biblical story. This revelation is given to Apostle John, and here in this vision, it's the final, unquestionable, decisive victory of Jesus Christ when he comes again. All the brokenness in the world, all the evil powers, all injustice will be reckoned with, and Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever with no obstacle, nothing in his way. He will be the rightful king And in these last three chapters, we see something really special going on. In the first three chapters of the the entire Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that we looked at three weeks ago, there's the creation of the heavens and the earth. Revelation closes with the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis, we saw the marriage of the first couple, Adam and Eve. And in Revelation, we see the marriage of the new lamb, the, the, the new Adam, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and his church. So this morning, we want to center all of our romantic thoughts, feelings, desires, experiences under one central truth, and it's this. Marriage is about Christ and the church. Marriage is about Christ and the church. I believe that this truth captures everything. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. This truth captures everything about marriage. So we're going to look at this truth, how it plays out in Revelation 19, and I believe that there are four takeaways, four takeaways for our romantic lives in Revelation 19. Y'all ready? Uh, Takeaway number one, marriage is temporary. As far as we can see, Scripture tells us that husbands and wives in this life will not be the case when we see Jesus face to face. When, we, when either Jesus comes again or we pass from this life, we will be fellow saints. We, we will be brothers and sisters. We will be the collective church of God for those who are believers in Jesus. We will be the bride of Christ. And in verse 7, this is what's happening. There's worship that's exploding. It, it sounds like thunder. It sounds like waterfalls crashing. And in verse 7, this is just part of the worship where the bride of Christ is talking in the third person and says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, us, has made herself ready. 
The capital C church is praising God because their wedding is about to start. And the lamb in, in Revelation is talked about 29 different times, and these are just some of the observations we take about the lamb. The lamb looks like he was slain. The lamb looks like a lion. The lamb is the one worthy of worship. The lamb is the one who will be on the throne when Satan is defeated. The lamb is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And this is Jesus himself. And the bride of Christ, the collective church, will be wed, married to this lamb. Um, for when Julie and I got uh, married, we chose not to do a first look um, prior to the wedding ceremony. And instead, the first time I saw her was when she walked down the aisle. And I did not get her permission, but there she is. For good reasons, I did not look anywhere else. Um, I could not keep my eyes off of her. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed to admit there were probably tears in my eyes there. And if you don't know, on the left, that's Pastor Eugene. He planted Cornerstone. He's now in California. Um, but she walked down the aisle. First time I saw her, and I'm reading this passage, and Revelation 19 tells me that my wedding, your wedding, any wedding in the world is a sign. It's a glimpse of what's going to happen at the heavenly wedding. As beautiful as any of our weddings could be individually or our weddings could be collectively, they will not compare to this marriage between Christ and his church. More lasting than my identity as a husband to my wife Julie is that I will be the bride of Christ. Marriage in this life is temporary. So what does this mean practically? It means that some, some legitimate, legitimate parts of our romantic desires will never be fully satisfied by earthly things, even marriage to a spouse. I'm not trying to be a killjoy. This is what we see in scripture. So married people, our spouses are simply, uh, maybe this is a weird term, on loan to us. We're with them for the time being until we die, they die, Jesus comes again. They're the ones we're committed to, but they will be the bride of Christ. Single people, and most of you want to get married, you're longing and, and searching for a future spouse has to be placed in the bigger picture that more than finding a significant, significant other, you are the bride of Christ. More important than finding your other half is that in God's eyes, you are not any less the bride of Christ. And this is something I struggled with too. So if marriage in this life is temporary, what is marriage for? And three weeks ago, we looked at the book of Genesis and we saw that we were given this unique, holy privilege of bearing the image of God as the Trinity. And we use this diagram, right? The triangle to represent God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The arrows pointing out, meaning that we're bearing his image, we're making God known. No other creature in all of creation was given this ability. And in relationships with one another, we better bear this image to one another. So what happens in marriage is that you become one. In covenant relationship, you bear the image of God that you would not be able to if you tried to do it individually. 
It's like synergy. One plus one doesn't equal two. It equals four because of this union. So the purpose of being God's image bearer is to know him intimately and to be known by God intimately and make him known to others. And that's an aspect of marriage that we need to recognize, that it's about making him known to others. So whether you're married or single, this is your identity. This is your design and purpose. And in the context of a committed, loving, lifelong partner in marriage, you go on mission together. So this is the second takeaway, that marriage is for holiness. Marriage is for holiness. If marriage is temporary, and and if you are married, then marriage is about helping your spouse become the bride of Christ. It's about becoming a better bride of Christ as you live your lives together. In verse seven, again, we we see that this marriage is about to happen, and what does the bride say? His bride has made herself ready. Marriage in this life points to Christ and the church, and and spouses are, are to help one another get ready for that wedding. Get ready. There's a counselor, uh, Dan Allender, and a theologian, uh, Tremper Longman, they write this, marriage requires a radical commitment to love our spouses as they are while longing for them to become what they are not yet. Every marriage moves either toward enhancing one another's glory or toward degrading one another. Enhancing one another's glory means we see the ways that God has uniquely created us, and it means helping your spouse live out their holy calling. It means that as individuals, if we don't pursue this holiness and concern ourselves with only happiness, we lose sight of this God-given identity of becoming his holy image bearers. And and this is another image that we used last time, right? The trinity, the triangle is, is kind of lost and hard to see. The arrows that we're meant to point out are all, all of a sudden pointing back at us. We don't, we don't reflect God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, whether married or single. The Trinity is hard to see, and sinful desires destroy and distort the way you view relationships. And then as you're searching for another spouse, you're actually looking for this perfect fit of people who will let you do what you want and let you be happy. If you're not about bearing God's image, this is what searching for a spouse looks like. Your future destiny of becoming the bride of Christ is in jeopardy. And once you do get married, you become a couple. You promise each other to live in this way. This is the danger of not being for one another's holiness. And that's why, and by no means, anything I say today is, um, am I trying to make anyone feel bad? It's an invitation to something better. If there's anything that's happening this month, it's we want to invite you to something better. So that's why if you are a follower of Jesus, the potential decision of marrying someone who does not believe in Jesus has serious spiritual ripple effects. If you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, the most important relationship in your life is Jesus. The most significant identity you have is to bear God's image. 
And when you choose to marry someone who does not believe, you are unable to meaningfully share the most important relationship in your life and the most important identity in your life. It's not about you're not following God's rules. It's you are choosing for a lesser glory than you were created for. When you get married to someone who doesn't believe, it's not impossible to grow. It's, it, it for sure is not. But your faith will be put to an, an enormous test. I know family members, I know friends who have made this decision. And just going to church on Sundays is hard. So I say that not as uh, to make you feel bad. Please hear that. It's to invite you to something better. If you are married, your call is to help your spouse know God's love through your words and actions, to cheer them on, to be the, the, a, a blessed person and a blessing person to others, to help your spouse be ready to become the bride of Christ. And for those who are be- becoming parents, and this was a, something that I had to think about, is that you are also participating in the mission of God by discipling your children to love Jesus and one day be the bride of Christ as well. And if you're single, the call is the same, pursue holiness. As you search for a potential spouse, the number one question should not be, will he or she make me happy? Your number one question is, am I living as someone who is holy, as someone who is being God's image bearer? And then you can ask, will he or she help me grow in holiness? Will he or she help me become more like Jesus? Will he or she help me live out the mission of God and making him known to others? So single people, please do not waste your singleness being overly consumed with finding a significant other. Apostle Paul, the same man who talks about marriage being a beautiful mystery, he says in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is a gift. It's a gift to live for Jesus as radically as possible, a rich opportunity to serve your future groom, Jesus Christ, with abandon. So marriage in this life is temporary. Marriage in this life is for holiness. And the next two takeaways are focused on this unique place of marriage in this life. Everyone following along? Yeah. In Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, Apostle Paul, he writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What is he talking about? In verse 31, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And the Apostle Paul understands this verse as oneness through the act of sexual intercourse. In Revelation 19, we have the bridegroom, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul is talking about this marriage in the future And he's also talking about sex. So when we look at Revelation 19, it's the image of this Lamb of God, our bridegroom, who has faithfully waited for his bride to be ready for this heavenly wedding day. Jesus has stayed faithful and will stay faithful to the church. He will not share his love with anybody else. And he's waiting for the God-ordained time for consummation with his bride. It's weird to think about. That's why Apostle Paul says it's a mystery. And this is the third takeaway. 
that sex is for covenant oneness in marriage. Sex is for covenant oneness in marriage. Sex is a gift of God for a married couple to understand the unity between Christ and the church. Physical oneness and sexual intercourse between husband and wife is a type, it's a pattern, it's a paradigm for understanding the greater heavenly eternal reality, the spiritual oneness that we're gonna have with Jesus, this oneness that Christ has with his church. And it, it's, it's strange, it really is. But there's something about sex that points to covenant faithfulness, covenant oneness in this life and the next. Uh, Roy Ortland, he's a pastor and author, he writes this. Sex is like a fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Here's the message of the Bible. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke the fire as hot as you can. Married couples, you know, like, I feel like you, you hear that? Um, in God's eyes, sex is about giving and serving. What we see in the world is sex is about getting and taking. At Cornerstone, believe it or not, the pastors pray a lot for the married couples. The pastors pray a lot for dating couples because of what's at stake. Because it's Christ and the church, this union. So Cornerstone married, married folks, keep the fire hot. I'm not messing around. Keep, keep it hot. Keep each other accountable, too. Talk about it. Get over the awkwardness because it's about Christ and the church. And the thing is, it's, it's uniquely boundaried in marriage. Any expression of sex outside of marriage is always destructive because sexual sin always, always involves another person another image bearer of God. In any expression of sex outside of marriage, and we know the, the, the ugly, nasty ones of human trafficking and prostitution, but we're also including premarital sex, adultery, and pornography. The image of God in us and in others is lost, damaged, ignored, and treated with contempt. So single folks, hear me out. Again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel worse but I think there is a lie that you've bought into that leads you to be more tempted to engage in premarital sex. And it's this, that dating is not a separate category in scripture. You're single or you're married. You can read the Bible and let me know if you find anything else. You're single or you're married, or you're betrothed to be married. If you're single, every person you interact with is, with is a neighbor. It's a spiritual sibling or the spouse of another person. When we treat dating as a separate category, we start to make exceptions. We start to justify how we overstep some of the ways that God designed things like sex. We act like dating is a separate category of relationships, so we begin to treat dating like a trial run for marriage. We begin to live out marriage realities with none of the marriage vows. That's why it's so dangerous. We seek all the conveniences of marriage with zero 
concrete commitments. And this treating dating as a separate category, it leads to a lot of blurry lines. And I really do think this is why so many Christian, Jesus-loving people struggle with premarital sex. <clears throat> and I'm going to name a couple of things that they're not sin. So again, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. I'm trying to invite you to something better. But cohabitation is something that we need to talk about whether intentionally or unintentionally. Intentionally moving in together or unintentionally staying overnight regularly at your significant other's place is not a great idea. Not because of the slippery slope argument. It's because you're living out marriage before you get the commitment. Another area is going on long extended romantic trips alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Generally not a good idea. It's not a sin. Generally not a good idea. Because this, this intimate connection that you're supposed to have is to be in marriage. And all of the pastors have seen the dark side of it. When people break up and are heartbroken, they have memories attached to certain places. They feel stuck because they've overcommitted without none of the covenant vows that we're, we're designed to make. It's, you're skipping the most important part of romantic relationships. In uh, April 1996, the Chicago Bulls, wait for it, <laughs> the Chicago Bulls, led by Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, had, at the time, They've set the best record for a regular season, win-loss record. 72 wins, 10 losses. But they had their sights on being champions. So they, they used and they adopted this motto, 72 and 10 don't mean a thing without the ring. 72 and 10 don't mean a thing without the ring. Because to the Bulls, having the best NBA record was meaningless unless they completed the task of winning the NBA Finals, getting their championship rings. So if you're single, this should be your posture for dating. I'm not even joking. Like, oh, you want to go to like, this beautiful place overseas? It don't mean a thing without the ring. <laughs> it doesn't matter how well they treat you how much your family likes them, how convenient it is, how comfortable it is to be with them. If they're not committed to your holiness, making you ready for the, becoming the bride of Christ, it don't mean a thing without the ring. Covenant oneness is crucial for marriage, for this life and the next. And sex is meant to display the exclusive, faithful devotion to one and only spouse, here on earth, and one and only Lord and Savior for the rest of eternity. In Revelation 19, verse 8, we read, the bride is talking about herself. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Clothing is such an important theme in Scripture. 
Linen in the Old Testament points to clothing that priests were supposed to wear. They were supposed to wear it in the temple. And white garments, especially in the book of Revelation, point to holiness and purity. And there's this one passage that I kept going to that stands out, and it's Revelation chapter 7. And Apostle John, he's describing this. And I, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A few verses later, John is engaging with this vision. He's talking to an elder, and they're trying to figure out who this group of people are. And we find out that they are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their clothing has been washed, and I believe the same is happening with the wedding clothes in Revelation 19. And this is the last takeaway. Marriage is all, it's all about grace. Three weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3. We, we saw that after Adam and Eve, <clears throat> they sinned against God. They are exposed to brokenness. They experience shame. They try to clothe themselves with fig leaves. And then before God sent them out of the Garden of Eden, he gives them something else instead of the fig leaves. He gives them a garment made of animal skins. It's a better garment. In Revelation 19.8, it's clear that the clothing of the bride of Christ is given to her by somebody else. It's of high quality. It's bright and pure. Her bridal dress is, is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's what verse 8 says. And if the robes were, were made white in the blood of the Lamb, I believe that the bride of Christ is wearing this better garment. The bride of Christ is wearing, it looks like the righteousness, righteous deeds of the saints, but it's actually the righteousness of the Lamb himself that he's giving to the bride. The bride of Christ is, is getting credited, credited to her, the righteous deeds of the Lamb as her own. We are given a better garment than what our deeds deserve. All your past brokenness and unrighteousness is traded in for Jesus' righteousness. All the ways you feel undeserving because of shame is washed in Jesus' blood. And this is what happens in the cross. Jesus was willing to humble himself, to come to earth, live a perfect life, die a shameful death on the cross but also claim victory over sin in the resurrection so that the church would no longer be separated from him. Costly grace was shown so that we would be united to him. A new garment, a better way. So the, for the best possible marriage in this life, if you are married or you desire to be married, is that you need to know Christ and the church. We need to see how Christ treats the church from Scripture. So married people, this means you treat your spouses better than they deserve. Because you know intimately what it means to be treated better than you deserve. Even in your fights, even 
when you don't understand each other, pursue reconciliation and forgiveness instead of retaliation and resentment. Because you know deeply what it means to be reconciled and forgiven by a loving God. Earlier we sang about this love that has no bounds, it has no ends. That's what we need to experience in marriage. Give your spouse a reminder of what it means to be given a better garment by Jesus Christ. And single people, you can practice this in the context of community. Uh, Christopher Ashe, he uh, shares a story in his book titled Married for God. Um, and he's from the UK, so he shares a story uh, between two offices of the government that were arguing. It was between the Foreign Office and the Treasury in Britain. And the argument was about which British ambassadors would be able to have a Rolls Royce for their official duties in a foreign capital. Rolls Royce is made in Britain, so they were vouching to have Rolls Royce cars in all of these foreign capitals. The Treasury makes sense. They would not want to spend that money. They, they didn't want to put it in all the capitals. They just wanted in a couple. But the Foreign Office, they argued for more based on this reasoning. They said, most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain, but when they see this magnificent car gliding through their streets with the UK flag on the hood, they will say to themselves, I have not been to Britain. I don't know much about Britain, but if they make cars like this, then Britain must be a wonderful place. In a similar way, I think God designed marriage so that when men and women, even those who don't know Jesus, see a Christ-centered marriage, they might be able to say, I've never seen God, and, and I sometimes wonder, when I look at this world, if God is good or if there even is a God. But if he can make a man and a woman love one another like this, if he, if he can make his, this husband show costly faithfulness through sickness and in health, if he can give him resources to love his wife with Christ-like sacrifice, then he must be a good God. Our relationships matter so much, and it's beyond happiness. It's about reflecting something so special about who God is. Through our devotion to our spouse as a married person, or through our devotion to Jesus as a single person, or through how we treat one another, we can declare to the world that this creator God who made us in his image is a very good God, worthy of trust, worthy of worship, worthy of all our devotion. Marriage is about Christ and the church. It doesn't matter if you're single, if you're married. That should center all of your romantic desires for God's glory, for God's namesake. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your grace to be seen. We pray that your cross would be seen. We pray that more than anything, we would know how deep your love is, how wide, how high, how far it goes. That we see the devotion of, of Jesus Christ that it would shape every marriage at Cornerstone. It would shape every Christian marriage. 
We pray for all the single people, those who have a boyfriend or girlfriend and those who, who don't, that they would recognize their greater identity as the bride of Christ. They would recognize the deeper call of bearing the image of God and, and understand that abounded love is the most precious love. Like the Garden of Eden, when you gave the prohibition to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was not you being stingy with us. It was you looking out for our good. So in the areas where your word says no, may your people also say no. Where your word says yes, may your people resoundingly say yes. So we pray that romantic relationships at this church would look so radically different than the relationships we see in the world and that people would start to want to know who God is, who you are, because of the way we pursue romance. So strengthen us, God. We can't do this on our own. There is no marriage that can do this perfectly. We need you, we need Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit guiding us every single day of our lives. We depend on you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.